The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're continuing in our study in 1 Peter. We've been going through the epistle for a little while and then... The last, uh, last time we were, well, last week was Youth Sunday. And by the way, I just make a comment about that. Bruce not only did a great job uh, preaching the Word, but the singing sounded really good on the live stream. And I just, I thought the youth should be encouraged that it, it was very nice. It was beautiful, edifying, and it was very encouraging. Um, it sounded very good. Um, so let's look together, First um, Peter 2. Uh, verses 18 to 25, um, and I'm actually going to read uh, the text twice, um, and uh, as I read it, the first time I'm going to read you the ESV, and then I'll just kind of read it again, breaking down. There's a lot here in this text, and I think if we really grasp this, um, I think this is life-changing. Hear the Word of God. Servants, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, for this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself wore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me pray again for us. Father, this is a difficult text, both to uh, grasp the implications of it, but then to, to live this out in reality. We ask that your spirit would make clear what you're saying to the church through this word. I pray that, Lord, you'd help me and that you'd help each of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to see what Jesus did for us and then what this means for us. Just two simple things. And I'm gonna read the text a little more literally this time so you can just kind of start to break down the new, there's a lot of nuances to this text that are not so clear in the English but in the original translation. So first of all, servants is literally household slaves. This is not the slaves of the word doulos or the word servants for deacons of diakonos. This is household slaves. It's the only time this reference is used that I know of in scripture. And the idea is that uh, just as you were to submit to the governing authorities in the text here, now he's dealing with household issues and most of the work was done out of the house. And so sometimes these slaves would not just be 
people that were prisoners of war, but also in the Roman Empire, half the empire was enslaved to the other half, but a lot of them were professionals. This might be your, your chef, it could be your doctor, it could be a household business out of your house, household slaves. And uh, they're called here servants. So servants be, being subject to your masters, literally with all fear is the word. The word phobos, not really respect, but actually much deeper of fear, with all fear. And I think it's ultimately out of fear of the Lord, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. That's not a good translation. The word is really scolios, from where we get scoliosis. And if you've ever had that, it's a little crookedness in the back. It's literally the crooked generation, a couple of those passages where Jesus talks about a crooked generation and Peter preaches about turning from this crooked generation. This is having a crooked boss. And if you're wondering what it means to have a crooked employer, it can be a lot of things. But I do think our, our, a lot of what I hear from people of this crookedness is... There's an idol, and the idol is in all capital letters, and it's spelled P-R-O-F-I-T. And everything is about profit. And you need more profit and more profit and more profit, and that's all that really matters. So if it means cutting corners, if it means being deceitful, if it means uh, taking advantage of people, I was just reading on my, my app uh, next door app that you know, and that's the beauty of the digital age. You know, is somebody was quoted a thousand dollars for his brake job and bad pads, and so he took it to another mechanic. The mechanic said, "There's plenty of life for your brake pads, and you don't need new rotors." And this thousand dollar brake job, and they listed the place. If you guys had next door app, you would have seen this. It was like, "Ooh, stay away from that place because that's a crooked place." Well, that's some of you experience that is that your boss is this crooked person, okay? So the application for us immediately would be to your employer, okay? And so for, and then, so then verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. The word thing is not in the original, so it's really the word grace as a noun. This is grace. When conscious of God or, or if mindful of God or conscious of God, one endures sorrows, literally grievous pain, while suffering unjustly for what credit, and that's literally the word for fame, what fame, honor, or glory is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The idea is that if you if you screwed up and now you're enduring, what, what's so great about that? The idea is here is, but if when you do good and, and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace. The thing is just some English supply word. It's grace in the sight of God. This is pleasing to God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for, and that's the who pair word, which we've talked about before, in your place, on your behalf. He has suffered for you. Interestingly, 1 Peter doesn't tell you that Jesus died for you. Of course he did. But Peter is relentless and constantly saying he suffered for you in his death. So when you get to 318, for example, 
and some translations actually translate, for Christ also died once for sins. Peter wants to make it clear because 16 times in the book he keeps referring to suffering because he wants you to know that Jesus is past, his suffering and death is your present. You are called to suffer in this life. We are called to embrace and take some things for the team. It's not a coincidence, as John Piper said, it's not coincidence, it's a calling. As a Christian, you are called to suffer. And that Jesus suffered for you in your place, and he went to the cross, and that his future, his present now in heaven is going to be your future. His present is glory. Our future is glory. So Jesus is past with suffering, and we're to follow in his steps. And that's the, the whole thing that he's going is, if you really want to decided to follow Jesus, it's not just, sit, let's sing the happy, clappy song that I've decided to follow Jesus, but that we have decided to follow Jesus in his steps of suffering. And if we never suffer as a believer, I would say it's because we're too weak and we're not willing to speak up for anything. And now the new issue in our culture is this pro-life issue is just rising up to the surface. And pretty soon your employer might even change, you know. Things may get really hard in blue states where abortion is uh, seen as unbelievable that you would not stand for something as that. And we want to try to help people to see, well, if the child was 12 weeks out of the womb, what, what difference does that make if it's 12 weeks in the womb? It's going to be hard on this mother either way. So well, this child, this is, a, this is a life, and we're trying to protect this life. So if the child was 12 weeks out of the womb, would you say we should terminate the child's life then? You see, the whole assumption is that we are talking about a life, and the other side doesn't think this is a life. If a kangaroo is expecting, what's expecting? What, what, is, what is the kangaroo going to deliver? A kangaroo. If a hippopotamus is going to deliver, what's it going to deliver? A hippopotamus. If it's a human being in the image of God, what is the mother going to deliver? A baby. And you rejoice when you see that ultrasound and you post it on Facebook. Nobody says, well, let me know when it becomes a human and I'll rejoice with you. Let me know when it's a real life and then I can get excited with you. I'm excited for the fetus. Nobody says that. They're like, oh, beautiful. Oh, it's a male, it's a female. Pray, you know, we rejoice. We, and why do people get so sad when, when there's a miscarriage? Do we say, oh, that wasn't a life? No, we, we, we grieve with them. Well, this just happens to be the issue. Whereas if we step out and say, this is life, Right now, that's one, you're going to take one for the team. You're going to take some, some blows. And in baseball, you're taught when the pitch is coming in and they really need a runner on base, what do you do? Lean into the pitch and take one for the team. So sometimes you got to just take one for the team. Well, if you are never suffering, it's because you're too weak. But I would say if you're suffering all the time, it's because you're too strong. Meaning you're You're annoying. You're, you're way too out there with it. 
And now you're, you're suffering because you're being obnoxious. And so there's the wisdom of knowing how to tactfully do these things, and we all have to work that out in our spheres of influence. But Jesus has suffered for us, and he's called us to walk in his steps. And so this, the suffering in 1 Peter that he's talking about is unjust authority structure. So we dealt, we dealt with government two weeks ago, and there are government structures that are over us, and sometimes they can be unjust, but 1 Peter doesn't Peter isn't really saying they're, that they're unjust. He actually says that their job is to punish, punish the evil and reward the good. But when he gets to servants, he does talk about having crooked masters. And he's talking to servants. And a lot of these Christians would have been these servants because it's not many mighty, not many noble were called because a lot of them were household servants, okay? They, they, they fit this mold. And so Peter's writing to these Christians who have a crooked boss. And so do many of you. And so what we're to do is we're to be like Jesus. And so what we're seeing is specifically what did Jesus not do and what specifically Jesus did do. And so if you follow this text, which I was in the middle of trying to read it to you a little more literally, uh, if you keep going, uh, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example in order that you may follow in his footsteps, literally footsteps. Years ago, we, uh, before we could send out emails from the home, this is like, you know, you'd have to come to the office to send out an email, and we had about 10 inches of snow, but for some reason I felt compelled to drive to the church on a Saturday night to send an email to the church to let them know church is canceled on Sunday if it wasn't already self-obvious, but I think I wanted the fun of driving and through the 10 inches of snow in my CRV to get here, and the church had not been plowed at all. So when I got to the church parking lot, there was about eight or 10 inches of snow, and I had the fun of just making sure I just made a circle because I was afraid if I had to back out that I would actually get stuck. So I turned around, I get out of my car, and the snow was so high that I actually had to hop to get to the church, okay? So I come in, I send the email, I go back to my car, and I realize... I can't find my phone. My phone is completely missing. And I realized that when I was hopping in the snow, that my jacket pocket, my phone must have just flown out of my pocket. So I, I had to go back in the church, call home, and say, keep calling my cell phone. Just keep calling it, because I'm on a hunt. I had to follow my tracks where I had hopped. And I didn't want to create new tracks, so I had to just keep following the tracks, and I'm listening, and of course my phone's on vibrate. But lo and behold, I, it was very cold, so my, my phone was not melting. I saw a little blue snow, and I realized, there's my phone. And I followed the track, and I picked up my phone, and there it was, and I was okay. The idea here is literally I had to go back to those exact tracks this is what you're called to do as a believer, as Jesus has, has laid a track for us. And here's how he laid a track, is that he went as a sheep before her, its shears is silent. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. We are told, I mean, that the echoes and reverberations to Isaiah 53 are, are relentless in this text, and we'll We'll look at that in just a second. So, but the idea here is that Jesus did certain things. And, it's, and if, so if you look at 22, 23, and 24, they all should begin with this pronoun, who. 
but they don't because I don't know why. You could ask Mike. He knows Greek a lot better than I do, but I see this as more of a creedal statement, just as you would say, you know, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, like in the Nicene Creed, um, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, you, you know, crucified, dead, buried. This is a creedal statement here that who committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, and, and suffering, he didn't threaten. And when he, con- he continued literally giving over himself, delivering it over to God, who judges justly, he was giving the burden back to God, and that who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's literally what that should say. In order that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed. And so, if you look at the, um, the connections here to um, Isaiah 53, um, there, are, there are many connections here. And I've lost my place in my notes here. Okay, here we go. Um, so first of all, I mean, the idea of like being silent we're told neither was deceit in his mouth in verse 22. Well, that's a, that's a direct quote from Isaiah 53. We're told that, that neither was deceit in Jesus' mouth. And we're told uh, a couple times in Isaiah 53, 7, that Jesus was silent. And he went to the, as a lamb to the slaughter, as a, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. And this is, he's calling us now to follow in his footsteps. So part of it is what we're not to do negatively is that we're not to return insults for insults. And this is so, I mean, this is so counterintuitive in our culture. Because when our, our, our culture right now is cancel them, write them off. Don't talk to them, talk about them. Post publicly. Uh, ghost them. Ignore them. Say that they're death to me. Did Jesus do any of those things? He, he didn't return insult for, for insult. He didn't return verbal abuse for verbal abuse. He didn't slander for slander. He didn't revile those who reviled him. So when he was reviled, and he was, he didn't do that in return. Okay? And then it says that while he's suffering, he didn't make threats. He didn't threaten. So... And if you think about, by his wounds, you have been healed. We sing this song where we sing, uh, Arise, my soul, arise. Five bleeding wounds he bears, right? What are the five wounds? Good question, because I got six, right? You got both hands, have nails through them. That's two bleeding wounds. Both feet, that's two more bleeding wounds, And it wasn't like they took sandpaper to the cross and made it nice and smooth for him. And we know that they took a bone that was attached to when they beat him 39 times so there wouldn't be any flesh on his back so that he would have to push up on the cross to get a breath. You know that his back is just bleeding, so that would count for one. And with the, the, the crown of thorns that they pummeled into his head, and they beat it with a staff into his head. His head is bleeding. So by his wounds, by his six bleeding wounds that I've got, you have been healed. Not healable, not an offer. You have been healed. What are you healed from? 
it's not necessarily the physical healing. That's going to come. And you can get some temporary healing in this life. And people get healed, but they're still going to die. The healing is, is souls made whole and being made right in the sight of God by Jesus' work on your behalf. And so by his wounds, he accomplished something. He accomplishes our healing because all of us are estranged from God. And the imagery here is sheep, sheep that have wandered away. We were straying like sheep. And so what do sheep need? They need a shepherd to come and get them and to, to find them and to rescue them. And, and that's where we were straying like sheep. Well, how specifically were we straying like sheep? In context, I can tell you, it's this. It's that we aren't gracious people and we don't suffer in and of ourselves and endure it and do it for the glory of Jesus and that we have reviled in return and we do revile in return and we do make threats and we don't like to suffer and, and we, we have what I would say is kind of the, the Linda Ronstadt mentality. Do you guys remember the hit song she had back and it was, I've been cheated, been mistreated, when will I be loved? And I think that's how a lot of Christians operate. I've been cheated. I've been mistreated. When will I be loved? Like God has, doesn't love me. And I'm mad at everybody else because they don't love me either. And I'm not getting my rights. I'm not getting my due. God, you must not love me. And what is the text actually showing us and telling us? Is that Jesus was the one who was cheated. Jesus is the one who was mistreated. And then it says that he suffered for you. Literally, in your behalf, in your place, because God couldn't overlook sin, and yet he also couldn't overlook you. He loved you so much, but, he, but he's also holy, and he can't love sin. So how can he be just and the justifier? Is that his son takes the suffering. And what's interesting is the very words that are used in this text when it talks about what Jesus has done for you and it, and it talks about what Jesus did is he negatively, he didn't revile in return, but what he did in verse 23 was he entrusted himself to him who judges justly and the word entrusting himself is literally parodidomai in the Greek and it's the word that means to hand over, to deliver over. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, and, and Peter says, these things I'm passing on to you or delivering them to you, or I'm sorry, Paul does. These things I've delivered over to you, paradidomai, that on the night our Lord Jesus was paradidomai, betrayed, it's the betrayed word, you've been delivered over. This is what happened to Jesus. So if you follow what's happening just with this imagery of the word, is that the Jews and Judas gave Jesus over to the Romans. And Jesus is suffering unjustly. Jesus hands it over to God, and he prays to God, deliver me, deliver me. Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they're doing. He entrusts himself, who judges justly, he gives it over to God. But then we're told in Romans 8.32 that God spared him not but delivered him over for us all. 
And, and it's being passed up and, and, and when it, and then Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Because it all fell on Jesus. Our sin. And Jesus is crying out to be delivered, and now he's justly being punished for our sins. They've fallen on Jesus. And so now we, as we follow in his steps, and people mistreat us, we entrust, we pray to God Deliver us, deliver us, forgive them. They know what they're doing. Lord, may it fall on the cross. May they come to Jesus. But we get out of the way. We let God be God and let him repay because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Give it to God. You don't need to be God. You don't need to do his job. You can just leave it with him. Either it will go to his son and they will come to Jesus, and it will be forgiven, or they will have to pay with the pains of hell forever, which we all deserve for our sin. And so Jesus is showing us what this idea of following in his footsteps looks like. And so when we say with this sermon title that I have decided to follow Jesus, what do we actually mean by that? Because the following now is these sheep that were lost have been rescued. And now that they've been rescued, these sheep just kind of follow the shepherd. And we're to follow him in, in embracing the hardships that come with this life. And there's going to be hard things. And I, and I know that our natural tendency is not to be mindful of God or conscious of God that he's getting out in verse 19, that when, when these things happen... We want to just vindicate ourselves and bring about justice. And you watch these movies, and it's always about, you know, uh, Liam Nielsen, and he is just the justice warrior, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. And we, we eat it up, you know, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it myself. And there's been plenty of times where I've done it myself, and it doesn't go well. I saw just on the Nextdoor app where someone said, I was being a, a donkey. He didn't say donkey, he used the other word. I was being a donkey this week, and I appreciated that the person that I was yelling at rolled down their window and said, and just asked me a question, are you having a bad day? And the person actually posted on Facebook that thank you for not exploding on me and reminding me that there were other issues going on in my life that caused me. And this person put all this in, in, and I'm thinking this is probably like one Christian speaking to another, or it's, you know, good for us to hear, but sometimes we get, you know, we get upset, and we want to retaliate, and the whole point is that Luke 6, 32 to 34 is the big other echo that, that Peter's bringing out here about, when, and I'll just read it to you. This is what Jesus says in Luke 6, 32 to 34, where Jesus says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? What grace is that to you? Same word, charis. Not a gracious thing, but what grace is that to you? What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what grace, what benefit is that to you? And if you do good to those, I'm sorry, for even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? What grace is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, 
but love your enemies and do good and lend and expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Peter is reflecting on those very words in Isaiah 53 and he's putting these together for us right here to say, follow in his steps. Do good. And the way you do good is to follow Jesus in his steps. And I'm going to end with an illustration before we come to the Lord's table where this happened in the life of Josiah Henson. And Josiah Henson, who I've mentioned a few times, he's the guy that the Montrose Parkway is being renamed after. He was a slave in the 1800s right here in Montgomery County. And he was treated horribly, went to the Rockville Courthouse and tried to plead his case one time after he was beaten so badly they broke both of his shoulder blades and he was beaten up by another master and a bunch of people, and they wouldn't even consider his case at the Rockville Courthouse because black people weren't allowed to give testimony. Okay, that's the Josiah Henson, if you remember some of the story. He becomes a Christian, and he is enslaved here in this area, but he goes down to help um, his master's brother And his master's brother puts him on a boat, and they're going down to the Mississippi. And when he gets to the end of the Mississippi, down in New Orleans, he knows he's going to be sold again and separated from his family forever. And so he decides that he's going to kill the people that he's on the boat with. And this is what happens. He says, as I pace back and forwards on the deck during my watch, I resolved in my mind many a painful and passionate thought. After all that I have done for Isaac and Amos Riley, and after all the regard they had professed for me, they they told him they were going to treat him this way, and they didn't. Such a return as this for my services, such an evidence of their utter disregard of my claims upon them, and the intense selfishness with which they were ready to sacrifice me at any moment to their supposed interest, turn my blood to gall, and change me from a lively, and I will say pleasant-tempered man, into a savage, morose, dangerous slave. I was not at all, I was not going at all as a lamb to the slaughter but I felt myself becoming more ferocious every day. And as we approached the place where this iniquity was to be consummated, I became more and more agitated with an almost uncontrollable fury. I said to myself, if this is to be my lot, I cannot survive it long. I am to be taken to a place in a condition where my life is to be shortened as well as made more wretched. Why should I not prevent this wrong if I can by shortening the lives of those who attempt to accomplish such injustice? I can do the last easily enough. They have no suspicion of me, and they are at this moment under my control and in my power. There are many ways in which I can dispatch them and escape, and I feel that I should be justified in availing myself of the first good opportunity. These thoughts did not flit across my mind's eye and then disappear, but they fashioned themselves into shapes which grew larger and seemed firmer every time they presented themselves. At length, my mind was made up to convert the phantom shadows into a positive reality. I resolved to kill my four companions, take what money there was in the boat, scuttle the craft, and escape to the north. It was a poor plan, maybe, and what very likely would have failed, but it was as well contrived under the circumstances as the plans of murderers usually are. Blinded by passion and stung stung to madness as I was, I could not see any difficulty about it. One dark, rainy night, within a few days' sail of New Orleans, my hour seemed to have come. I was alone on the deck. Master Amos and his hands were asleep below, and I crept down noiselessly, got hold of an axe, entered the cabin, 
and looked, looking by the aid of the dim light there for my victims, my eyes fell upon Master Amos, who was nearest to me. My hand slid along the axe handle. I raised it to strike the fatal blow. When suddenly the thought came to me, what? Commit murder? And you, a Christian? I had not called it murder before, but self-defense to prevent others from murdering me. I thought it was justifiable and even praiseworthy. All at once, the truth burst upon me that it was a crime. I was going to kill a young man who had done nothing to injure me, but was only obeying the commands of his father. I was about to lose the fruit of all my efforts at self-improvement, the character I had acquired, and the peace of mind that had never deserted me. All this came upon me with a distinctness which almost made me think I heard it whispered in my ear. I believe I even turned my head to listen. I shrunk back, laid down the axe, and thanked God, as I've done every day since, that I did not commit that murder. And then later he says, I reflected that if my life were reduced to a brief term, I should have less to suffer that it was better to die with a Christian's hope and a quiet conscience than to live with an incessant recollection of a crime that would destroy the value of life and under the weight of a secret that would crush out the satisfaction that might be expected from freedom and every other blessing. And I would just say to us, as we come to the table, and when he's saying, you were straying like sheep, you were harboring bitterness. You were mad. You were retaliating. You were reviling. You were insulting. You were returning evil for evil. You were straying, but now you've returned. Have you returned? Have you returned to the shepherd? Is there somebody here today that you need to lay the ax down and you need to forgive from the heart that just as Jesus has suffered for you, and for, forgiven you, we're told now in the Lord's Prayer, we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. Lord, forgive my debts as we forgive, as I forgive my debtors. Is there somebody that as we come to the table that you need to just lay it down? Because this is what we're called to do. This isn't a coincidence. This is our calling as Christians to be non-retaliatory, not a people of retaliation, but a people that do good, expecting nothing in return. Let's pray. Father, now as we do come to your table, would you give us the grace that this would be a gift from you, that we would return evil with goodness, and then when hurt by others, whether it's in marriage, or at work, or as parents, or as children. That we would overcome evil with good. And that you would give us this grace, Lord, to follow you in your steps. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.